3: previously on Hello, John Doe.
0: So we had this missing person case, Philip Brandenburg, and now Philip is, is identified and he's really a real person and he was really born.
4: It was just such a, an amazing feeling. I knew the whole time, It just in my mind, in my heart, I knew that that test was gonna come back positive. You
5: blew their minds.
4: Yeah. You did. You wasn't supposed to be here, but you were. Yeah.
5: Well, I chose him. If he hadn't been born, I wouldn't have got him. I couldn't love him anymore if he was mine. or not I was very worried, and through the whole process. Because, you know, it changes a person when you find out so many crazy things. To find their birth mother, some adoptees have to look through paperwork housed in musty warehouses, or they have to make lots of calls to adoption agencies. But for Steve Patterson, once we had proven he was really Philip Stephen Brandenburg, Finding his original mom was as easy as getting on Facebook.
4: And I texted her, and that's when she said she had been looking for me for all these years. And then she finally found her long-lost son, stuff like that.
5: Her long-lost son? Looking for him? That didn't make a lick of sense to Steve.
4: I mean, it was important to find out who my mom was, too. my biological mom. But I I don't know. I, I don't know. He found her
5: so quickly online. Couldn't she have done the same? After all, she must have known Mary's last name, right? Steve didn't know what to think about Sandy at first, but he did want to find out why she gave him up. You want to find your father, right? Or at least yeah. know who he is. Know who he is. For us to at least. at least find out. Yeah. That would be pretty cool, I think.
4: That's my one of my biggest things.
5: But in 2021, he worked up the courage. He was wishing Sandy happy mother's Day on Facebook, and he wrote... Hey, Mom, who's my dad? I imagine him holding his breath as he clicks in, wondering if Sandy would respond. And then Sandy did respond. She wrote, I'm sorry. I don't have an answer for you.
4: And I I got angry, and I I texted her I probably shouldn't have. I was like, I just want to know who my dad is. Can you not tell me who my dad is? And she was like, I can't remember she presumably
5: had a one-night stand with someone and got pregnant, but she didn't have specifics. Up until then, I think there was a part of Steve that had been looking for a fairytale reunion with this mom and dad, something satisfying, something that made sense to him. But this, he couldn't cope with being the result of a fling. To Steve, I think it took on additional weight, that maybe Sandy didn't want him in the first place.
4: And I hadn't really talked to her since. Well, I mean, I've asked her several times. I think everybody's got an origin. And I would just like to know, you know, where I began. I'm not at all sad or disappointed in how I grew up, but I just, I don't know. It's just, it is a
5: big deal to me. And enough for him to reconsider everything. He wasn't sure anymore if he wanted to keep getting to know Sandy. Why should he meet her if she wasn't going to give him answers? For Mary, his adoptive mama, none of this was much of a surprise.
1: There's no way she'd know who Steve's daddy is because, like, my mom always told me, you
5: get out there and run through a, a briar patch. Which one of them briars stuck
2: you?
5: There ain't no way you could know who your daddy was. The not knowing nagged at Steve. He took to drinking more than usual. He'd gone all this way, almost 50 years. And once he got to the end of the tunnel and found Sandy, he didn't find what he was looking for.
4: I've talked to her maybe, maybe 10 or 12 times. I mean, she'll text me happy birthday and stuff like that
5: you want a relationship with her at
4: all? I mean, would you like to have that? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I could answer that question better once I find out why she gave me up. If that makes sense. That's just me. Maybe later on down the road we can revisit that question. Yeah. Yep. But to
5: me, it sounded like Sandy didn't feel the same way. She wanted to know Steve. His adopted mother, Mary, confirmed that. She keeps begging me, and I won't text her back. Please have Steve come see me. And I said, it's up to him. That's,
3: that's not my call.
5: It wasn't just Steve who had questions. I'd come up with some of my own through the years. Remember, I'd been looking for him for almost 20 years. I needed to lay some things to rest. And this woman, Sandy Brandenburg, held the keys to a lot of my questions. When I first heard about this family, I couldn't stop thinking about their two boys. And Sandy, not only was she Steve's mother, she was also the grandmother of the other missing boy, the schoolboy named Michael, who disappeared in the mid-90s. As I've told you, a serial killer named Franklin Floyd tore this family apart. He wormed his way in by marrying Sandy when she is in a desperate situation. That's part of why I wanted to talk to Sandy. I wanted to find out why did she end up marrying Floyd? Why did she give up Steve and not the girls? And since Steve wasn't clamoring to meet Sandy in person, I got his blessing to reach out. My producer Kate and I were nervous about even calling her on the phone. Figured she'd hang up, or worse, stay on the phone and tell us to go to hell. And I can see why. It would be hard to dig back into the past and talk about the son she lost track of. It might be hard to cope with. What kind of mom loses track for kids? But when Kate called her up, she was real sweet. She told us to come over anytime. time, so we did. What we found completely changed my idea of who Sandy was. Flipped the story I had in my head for 20 years upside down. My name is Todd Matthews, and this is Hello John Doe, a sleuth, a family, and a serial killer. The story of a family torn apart by tragedy, and my quest to bring them back together. Chapter 3, Sandy
2: of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching The Furthest Thing from the Truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: We drove straight from Steve's neighborhood North Carolina to Virginia to see Sandy. Turns out, it was only a day trip. Think about that. So many of Steve's answers to his life were just a car ride away. Sandy lives in Hampton, Virginia, a Chesapeake watershed town across the bay from the world's largest naval base. It's absolutely beautiful out there. Look anywhere and you'll see a body of water. Going to Sandy scared me in a way, I guess because I wasn't sure what to make of her. I didn't understand how she'd lost track of Steve and lacked the wherewithal to find him especially being so close. And Steve and Mary's descriptions of her weren't the most flattering. But there's something about this line of work that's taught me. You just never know. People can surprise you. I've seen that once or twice before. My
3: name is Sandy Willard. I'm 73 and I've been in and out of Hampton for the past 50 years.
5: Sandy welcomed us into her house. She uses a wheelchair to get around lives right next to her adult grandchildren, Summer and Autumn, who came in and out of the room while we chatted.
1: She's
3: a TikTok star.
1: Oh, look, I'm
5: so shy. The house was tidy enough, but had no furniture. She'd apparently recently gone through a move. My producer, Kate, and I sat on a couple of desk chairs and set the recorder on her walker. Sandy kind of looks like Joni Mitchell nowadays. She has this hippie, beautiful air about her. Her skin is tan. Her long hair seamlessly turned from blonde to white with old age. She has this essence about her, like she's got stories. Nowadays, her life is fairly simple.
3: What do I do for fun? I keep my four-year-old great-granddaughter, and I'm going to keep Autumn's new baby when he's born.
5: She lives near family, stays at home mostly. She told me about growing up.
3: We moved all over the place. My dad worked for GM and we moved all
5: over the place. Born in Washington, D.C., then ended up spending a lot of her childhood in Detroit. She loved school, especially history classes. She used to invite neighborhood kids over and charge them a dime to play school. She was the oldest of three kids.
3: I was the quiet one. My sister was a model at one time. My brother was a trucker. I don't know what my brother does now, I think he's retired. My parents were very. Let me see how can I can put. That? I love my parents to death, but my parents were very strict.
5: Not only were they strict, she says they were also fearful. They lived in a mostly white neighborhood outside of the city.
3: My mother sat during the riots in Detroit. My mother sat in the suburbs with a gun at the window at night to protect us from all these rioters that were going to come and get us at night.
5: Sandy's referring to the 1967 race riots in Detroit. It was one of many cities that saw upheaval around the time it's called the long, hot summer of 67. Detroit police raided that bar, called in paddy wagons, and hauled off about 80
4: people to jail. That's when all hell broke loose.
2: I do hereby officially recommend the immediate deployment of federal troops into Michigan. 43 Americans
4: died in these streets. The city of Detroit was shut down.
5: It was a time of flux for Detroit, which then had a population closer to 1.5 million people. It was a time of tension, but also of Motown, manufacturing, the Detroit Tigers, and a World Series win. But at home, Sandy's dad was kind of living in the past. According to Sandy, he was a tough nut who had a lot of rules. Let's just say there were more don'ts and do's in this household, particularly if you were just a girl.
3: I got grounded one time for six months because I said I was going to get my ears pitched when I was 70. I wasn't allowed to get my driver's license because I was a girl. My mother became an interior decorator when I was in my 40s. She stayed home the rest of the time. My mother didn't drive till she was 26 or 27.
5: Sandy dated, but not in a way you or I might recognize as dating.
3: Oh, no, I dated, but... Usually, very few single dates. It was all, we did things as a group. I mean, there were like nine of us that hung out together. They followed us on dates, my sister and I. It was just really strange. Now that I look back at it, it was really strange, but, you know, at the time.
5: She just didn't know anything else back then. Sandy's parents were overbearing, and you can imagine the toll that would take on a person. Constantly told what she was allowed to do. Sandy wanted a life of her own where she could get away from all of that. So when she met a nice guy who was part of the group, she jumped at the chance to gain some independence. Cliff,
3: it's Vegas. He was part of the group. He was part of our group.
5: Sandy's family had moved down the street from him when they were in high school. Cliff was a few years older. They were friends, but it wasn't some sort of meet-cute situation. For Sandy... Clip was an opportunity.
3: I wanted to get away from home. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so we got married. We didn't tell anybody at first when we got married. And then we broke it to them gently. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they were furious, furious.
5: Sandy was only 18. This was her first chance at having the life she wanted. She could move to the big city and fulfill her dreams.
3: I ended up teaching um, in a school in the inner city in Detroit. And we didn't teach history and government. I taught how to fill out job applications, how to get a bank account.
5: Then Clip was drafted, and Sandy was left to her own devices. Vietnam is often referred to as the first television war. It had a serious global impact, but it also reverberated in America's living rooms.
2: By 1969, more than half a million men and women were stationed in South Vietnam. All these men are in the Army. Some are draftees,
4: some regulars.
5: We've lost something over 40,000 men now, 40,000 American
3: lives. Cliff was in Vietnam while I was pregnant. I had my own apartment. I met the girl next door. Her husband was in the military too. Everybody was back then.
5: About a year after they were married, Sandy gave birth to her first child. She was named Suzanne Savakis.
3: When she was born, she had this this little curly little curls and big blue eyes. I was so excited.
5: You yeah. look a lot like her. Thank you. There are baby photos of Suzanne in the house. They both had those same sapphire blue eyes, that big grin, the bleach blonde hair. Suzanne was precocious, a standout from the start.
3: She was just always so happy she I, I don't know. She, she had a strong personality. She loved school. She loved learning things. She loved doing things. I think she wouldn't been a teacher. I really do.
5: Suzanne, whom Sandy sometimes calls Susie, was almost two years old when Cliff came back from Vietnam. By then, the couple realized they had no real bond. They divorced pretty quickly after. My dad was drafted. I've seen firsthand the war's lasting impact. Cliff was never the same.
0: I was had a little PTSD, I had a, a crumbling marriage. It doesn't help to go get off the plane at the airport and have the hippies uh, call your names and spit at you.
5: Cliff called me a few months after I talked to Sandy. We talked about other stuff, but he didn't want to talk about her. He set that boundary early on. All I'll say here is that the two probably weren't all that well matched in the first place. By her early 20s, Sandy decided being her own with the kid was better than being under her parents' roof and better than being hitched a cliff. But beyond that, she hadn't thought that far ahead. And remember, this was a time of women's liberation. The pill was suddenly accessible. Women were becoming free from the constraints of motherhood and unwanted marriages. But that wasn't the case for everyone. There were still many pockets of the country where that change hadn't set in yet. Getting birth control was all but a nightmare, a challenge at every turn.
3: The first thing, you had to find a doctor that wasn't Catholic. Catholic doctors did not give birth control to anybody. And you asked for birth control, and they'd give you a lecture about how it could kill you, how it could hurt you, and then they would give you the lowest dose of whatever they could give you and lecture you the whole time you were, you were doing it. You had to be married, and you, you endured the lecture because it was your job as a woman to have as many kids as you could, as fast as you could have them.
5: Sandy wouldn't stay single for long. She met a man at a restaurant who couldn't be further from the straight-laced Vietnam veteran that Cliff was. If Cliff was by the book, Dennis was a wild card. They got married pretty quick.
3: He was a lot of fun. He was a professional gambler.
5: There's this paradox about Sandy. She was always on the hunt for freedom as a woman, but she only seemed to find it through marriage, through the men in her life. Two years after she married him, she got pregnant with her second daughter, Allison. Then came Amy, her third. That marriage didn't last either. The way she puts it, it was her parents that pushed Dennis out the door. That's her view at least.
3: My parents made it so hard that he left and I think he went to California. He would pop up from time to time to visit us. But he'd never stay. I never knew where he was.
5: By this point, Sandy was now a mother of three girls with no second income and no second parent to help out. She relied on neighbors to watch the kids while she worked at the sewing mill. Here's my producer, Kate, again. Did
2: they try me a of the kids, or was it your no, deal?
3: No, your
5: problem. My deal. At that time, it was the woman's problem.
3: Exactly. Yeah, i take the real winners.
5: Sandy married five times in her life. Most of her husbands didn't pay child support. When they decided to split, she'd be left with the kids, and that was that. Cliff, Sandy's first husband, wouldn't talk about it. Dennis Brandenburg died years ago. Sandy told me her parents weren't much help, but they were living outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and told her to move closer to them. She figured it might help, now that she was on her own. Sandy and her three kids moved to a trailer park in North Carolina the one that Mary remembers going to, Up Church's Trailer Park. When I think about Steve's story, I think about the patchwork of circumstances and decisions that impacted his life. The butterfly effect, I guess you'd call it. If Mary hadn't worked at the sewing factory, if she hadn't known Sandy, if she hadn't tragically lost two infants of her own, would she have adopted Steve? If Steve never found my number, would he have found out his real story? For Sandy... Two of those what-if moments happened in 1974.
3: There was a tornado, and the tornado twisted my house.
5: It basically decimated her home. It had a catalyzing effect on Sandy's mental health. The storm made all the things she was already dealing with that much worse.
3: Well, I'm out there saying, people, come stay in my house. People that had lost their house in the neighborhood, come stay in my house. I didn't realize my house was seven feet off the ground until I went to go out.
5: Sandy suffered immense pain, both mentally and financially.
3: The girls were traumatized by the tornado because we were in the trailer when the tornado hit. And we had no way out.
5: Her daughter Amy barely remembers it. But it's become part of family lore.
3: There was a tornado, and I was lost for a brief period of time. And they found me in the refrigerator. It had fallen with the doors open, and I was inside. So I had been protected by the refrigerator.
5: In the second what if moment, that year, Sandy happened to get pregnant again. Steve was right. Sandy told me she doesn't know who Steve's father is, but she figured it might be her second husband, Dennis Brandenburg.
3: Dennis would come when my parents weren't around and see the kids all the time and see me. And um, every time he came, we had sex plain and simple. So when I came up pregnant with Steve, I thought, okay.
5: But she wasn't certain. And she came under fire for that uncertainty.
3: My mom and dad thought I was a prostitute. That's why I don't know whose father is. Not true at all. I don't, I didn't, don't ever remember having a boyfriend back then, but I drank some back then too. Drinking and
5: trauma don't go so well together. You can erase big swaths of memories that way. Sandy suspects she was having blackouts. Here's her daughter, Amy, again.
3: We'll ask questions and she'll be like, I can't remember, I drank a lot, I can't remember. And you just get tired of hearing that.
5: But Sandy seems to remember some bright spots, like parts of her pregnancy with Steve.
3: Oh yeah, I was excited. The girls were excited. We had all these little baby clothes.
0: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff.
5: She didn't have a home or a car. She was in temporary FEMA housing. She didn't have a husband who could help her with her children. She was excited about Steve's arrival, but this must have been a time of unimaginable stress, too.
3: We were in a hotel. I said, Mommy's going to go have the baby now. Can we come, too? (laughs) And the girls were so excited. We were all excited. We, We must have dressed him in 90 outfits a day at first. And she picked out a name for him. Philip Stephen, P.S. He was supposed to be P.S. the end of the line. (laughs) (laughs) You're done. (laughs) I'm done.
5: But reality quickly set in. She was now a single mother of four, living in temporary housing. She couldn't manage. And her daughter Amy wasn't the only one having trouble coping after the tornado.
3: And I guess I I snapped. I, I didn't know what to do. So I went to social services in North Carolina and said, you have to take my kids because I can't take care of them. I need help, mental help. And that's exactly how I put it, I need mental help. I couldn't function. If it rained, I sat in the corner and cringed.
5: Sandy doesn't know exactly why she snapped in. She just knew she had hit a wall. It might've been postpartum depression. Sandy told me she thought she had PTSD from the tornado. At any rate, Sandy was at a loss. She didn't know what to do. She didn't live with another adult who could help her weather the mental illness. So the best thing to do, she reasoned, was to give up her kids. While Sandy was struggling with her mental health, her oldest, who she called Susie, stepped up.
3: It wasn't fair to ask Susie, at five years old, to take care of a newborn baby. But she did. And a two-year-old. Yeah, and, but she did. And and I couldn't go like, it couldn't go on like that. It wasn't fair to to the girls. It wasn't fair to Steve. Anything could have happened. Back then, if you asked for, for help, they treated it like it was a joke. I mean, come back next week. We'll talk to you next week.
5: Now in her 70s, she's gotten a diagnosis and meaningful help. That's how she ended up being a grandma who takes care of her grandbabies and great-grandbabies when she couldn't take care of the first four children she had. The day Sandy decided to give up her children to social services was a moment of clarity, like the fog lifting. She had to get them to a place where they would be okay. So she did. But after that, Sandy missed them. It was a mother's pull to be back with her kids. She would do anything. Around this time, Sandy went to church. It was the first Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And she met a guy that seemed fairly nice. In pictures, he has dark hair that he sometimes parts to the side, handlebar mustache, and big square glasses, which were in vogue then. This guy listened to her story and offered to help her get the kids back.
3: So I was in Charlotte, and that's why I met Franklin Floyd. But I knew Miss Brandon Williams. And he said that he would go with me to get the kids and everything would be all right.
5: This was Franklin Floyd, the man who would later be convicted for murder, who already had quite a rap sheet with more fake IDs and a bandit. This was a guy who came up in Steve's Google searches when he started looking for himself.
4: And then I, I started typing in uh, Franklin's name and started reading about him.
5: What he read startled him. He couldn't believe that he'd just barely crossed paths with this man, a serial killer now sitting on death row.
4: I got lucky, got lucky. I mean, it kind of feels like Mary saved your life. Oh yeah, 100% no doubt. Because if she wouldn't have got me, I would would have had to go with, with Sandy and Franklin and that wouldn't have turned out good.
5: And this made him rethink the events that led up to this. How different his life could have been if Sandy didn't give him to Mary. Floyd made an impression on Mary when she adopted Steve. I saw him at a distance, and what they left him was a little Mazda, a two-seater Mazda, with them three kids. I never did get to talk to him. I kept my distance from him.
4: She said that he, she got a bad feeling from him that he was standing, when they switched me off or whatnot, he was standing far off just staring. She just, there was something about him.
5: But Sandy didn't know there was something about him when she met him. Not yet, at least. Sandy was simply grateful to meet a man that wanted to help her out.
3: I don't think mentally at that time I was capable of loving anybody. I really, really needed serious mental help. I loved the fact that he was going to help me get my kids back and take me away from the situation. Love him? No.
5: She married him anyway. But it wasn't just that Sandy always needed a man by her side, though she admit that's probably true. Floyd? Been the helpful man he seen, saved the day and reunited Sandy with her family. But then, he went off script.
3: And we took the kids back to the trailer and we stayed there for a couple weeks. And then he said, we're moving.
5: Moving? Who was this guy? The guys before were just flings or bad matches or impulsive relationships, maybe. If those guys were bad matches, this guy was a bad man, plain and simple.
3: And by this time, I was afraid of it. What? He's creepy. He was always creepy. And now that I look back, I was so stupid and so naive. I mean, and I remember dumb little things. He had false teeth. The false teeth said Franklin Floyd on him. It was engraved in him. He told me that was the dentist's name, and I believed him. You know, and then he went out one time and killed a squirrel and he was skinning the squirrel, and I don't eat squirrel. And the girls said, they're not eating the squirrel. And uh, he said, y'all will eat it or y'all be just skinned just like this thing. So he did. I threw it up, but yeah. And I made the girls do it too. Oh, he slept with a gun under the pillow and he always had a knife. No way out.
5: When he said they were moving, it wasn't really a discussion. This is what Steve didn't know. When he was a baby, Floyd had come into their lives and taken over. If they disobeyed him, he'd threaten to skin them alive like
3: squirrels. He had a Honda. And back then, Hondas, the original Hondas had motorcycle engines. They were little teeny-weeny, tiny little cars. And he said, we don't have room for everybody in the car. and. We drove one night to Mary's house and and took Steve and left him there, and I cried the whole way back. And he said, we'll go back and get him, we'll go back and get him, we'll go back and get him. And then when we got to St. Louis, he said, you'll never see him again.
5: This is where memory gets pretty weird. There's a lot that Sandy doesn't remember about this period in 1974. She says so herself. She says she drank a lot during this time, though she denied doing any drugs. Some of Sandy's memories are just shades of what happened. Some are infused with the stories she's heard over the years, other people's memories. What she remembers about Steve's adoption was very different from Mary's story. We'll get to Sandy's story of the adoption in the next chapter. But all you need to know right now is that according to Sandy, she employed, Drop Steve off with Mary and took off for St. Louis with the three little girls. In hindsight, meeting Franklin Floyd seemed like a catalyst for Sandy. Everything in her precarious life would completely fall apart.
3: I went to jail for writing a bad check. I wrote a check for $1.78 to get diapers for Amy. 7-Eleven made it a point to prosecute everybody. All I had to pay was that $10 fee, and my parents wouldn't lend me the $10 to pay it. And even the judge, when I went to court, kind of laughed.
5: 30 days. That's how long she was behind bars. She left her three daughters with a friend to keep them away from her husband, who by then she was terrified of. That didn't matter. While she was in jail, Floyd picked up the girls. He dropped two of them off in an orphanage and took off with Susie. It would be years until Sandy found out what really happened to her daughter.
3: Next time on Hello John Doe. I wasn't worried about combing my hair. I was just, I was gonna find her. I had to find her. And that's when he took her and that was the last time that she was seen. He just wanted her, is what I thought. I never thought it would be the nightmare it was.
5: Hello John Doe is an original production by Revelations Entertainment in association with First and Last Productions. From Revelation, our executive producers are Morgan Freeman and James Younger. From first to last, Lindsay Moreno is the executive producer. Our producing partner is Neon Hum Media. It was written and produced by Kate Mishkin. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. She is also Neon Hum Media's executive editor. Our executive producer is Shara Morris. Our development producer is Ian Lindsay. Our associate producer is Rufaro Faith Mazurura. Sound design and mixing by Scott Somerville. Theme and original music composed by Jesse Perlstein. Additional music came from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Bendel Fulton is our fact checker. Our production manager is Samantha Allison. From iHeartMedia, Dylan Fagan is our executive producer. Special thanks to Adelia Rubin at Neon Hum and Carrie Lieberman and Will Pearson at iHeartMedia. I'm Todd Matthews. You can learn more about NamUs at namus.gov. The number for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's Call Center is one 800 the Lost. That's 1-800-843-5678. The National Sexual Assault Hotline from the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network is 1-800-656-4673. Okay, guys, this is the end of the show. If you didn't like it, don't do anything. But if you did like it, you make sure that you rate and review the show. It helps more people to find it and hear this wonderful story. Thanks again for listening.